Let's bow together. Father, again, thank you so much for the privilege we have to come before you to uh, sing your praises, to uh, worship you. And Lord, I pray as we declare your excellencies now from your word that you would prepare our hearts, that you would grant us insight and wisdom so that uh, we would understand what you intended and what you desire us to learn and what you desire us to do. And so, Father, I thank you for this time in your word. We ask you to bless it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you uh, look at the different types of churches these days, one thing that you're going to notice is there's all kinds of different leadership. There are churches that appear to be biblical, that have leadership that address sin, that preach the word, uh, that are uh, walking with Jesus Christ in accordance with by, by his spirit, allowing him to work through them, abiding in Jesus. And there are those who are forging their own way in how they do church. Uh, it's interesting. Uh, there are some churches that we see that uh, openly endorse sin or sinful practices. Uh, there's wickedness in those churches. Uh, there's self-focus. There's uh, the aggrandizement of, of mankind rather than the exalt, exaltation of God. And all this comes down to who is leading the people there, really, or are the leaders being faithful in what they are in, in their responsibilities, or are the leaders even the Lord's leaders? Well, we've been looking at the book of Nehemiah, and we come to the last section of the book of Nehemiah, which is a difficult section um, to interpret, I think, but I think we'll gain understanding as we look through it. But I think the main thing we're going to see in here are lessons for us in godly leadership in addressing sin within uh, the assembly of God and within God's people, addressing that. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, we've come to chapter 13, and uh, we've been studying this book, and we know that the first six chapters are about the rebuilding of the walls in the context of great opposition. And we learned many lessons on how Satan attacks us through men uh, and tries to discourage us, tries to get us to give up to stop the work, but uh, by God's grace, uh, Nehemiah continued through and they finished and rebuilt the walls. But then we came to chapter 7 and we realized that uh, at this point the city was to be inhabited, but there was no one inhabiting it. And Nehemiah moves at this point to address what I believe is the spiritual rebuilding of the people uh, because they needed to be restored before they could inhabit uh, Jerusalem rightly, in a sense, those who would do so, for they could worship the Lord rightly. And we saw the wonderful uh, revival, in a sense, in chapters 8 through 10, where the people desired to hear the word of God. They called upon Ezra to share it to them. The truth was brought forth through the Levites. It was explained in stinging fashion so that they would understand. And the people responded. They responded. They were convicted of their sin and they obeyed. And they recognized that it was their fault and their father's fault for why they had gone into exile, that they had rejected and disobeyed the Lord. And they were uh, contrite about that. And they made a, a commitment to obey the Lord. The leaders did and also the people. And then they even addressed three areas, which we'll see today in reverse, but we'll see them three areas 
uh, that they had sinned in specifically, that they were committing before the Lord to obey him in, uh, certainly in relationship to foreigners and then in relationship to uh, their view of the Sabbath and work uh, and trusting the Lord and then in relationship to their support of the, 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 uh, the worship and, and service of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, through, in that time, the temple, pointing to him, pointing to him, the lamb who would take away the sins of the world. And so here we have uh, a, a group of people who are spiritually uh, rebuilt. They're, they're walking with the Lord. Uh, they're doing the right thing. And then we have the dedication of the temple, or excuse me, the temple, the dedication of the walls uh, in chapter 10. And we learn from there all kinds of different lessons on how we should worship corporately. There's a little bit, certainly, in the New Testament, but there's a lot about corporate worship in the Old Testament. And we gain some principles there. Uh, we saw that there needs to be leadership. There needs to be skilled servants. The worship was planned. It needs to be pure. It needs to be pure, right hearts, clean hearts before the Lord. It needs to be organized, ordered, and it needs to be immersed in God-glorifying music. Music that is giving thanks to the Lord. We even saw that word choir meant hymns of thanksgiving. You know, you don't think a choir. That's what we should think when we think of choir, right? And that uh, the focus should be on uh, Jesus Christ and the sacrifice that he made for us as they gave great sacrifice. So it's that pointed to uh, Jesus Christ, the, the once for all sacrifice. And that brings great joy. And then the last time we were together, we saw that it would, call, it would, it would uh, have, there would be a worshipful offering. There would be a giving for the functioning of that worship. And then lastly, we saw there would be the preaching of the convicting word in chapter 13. Remember it had that term, on that day, on that day, on that day. And that was the day that they were dedicating the walls. And it's from this point we come to the end of Nehemiah and the last portion. And we're going to see this in verses 4 through the end. But today we're going to look at the first portion of three portions, I believe, in this section. Now I want to read through what we're going to see, but then I'm going to continue on and read through the end of the chapter. But I'm going to point some things out that I'm going to note later on that will help us gain an understanding for interpreting the, the, the smaller parts. You know, to interpret the Word of God, you interpret Scripture with Scripture. We need to understand the greater context so that we'll see the portions that may seem difficult in, a, in light of God's Word rightly. So here, if we look at Nehemiah 13 and verse 4. Now prior to this, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings in the, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. But during all this time, I, and that's Nehemiah, by the way, was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. Now, you might remember that this book takes place in the 20th year of Artaxerxes. So now he's talking about 12 years later, okay? And so he says here, after uh, gone to the king, after some time, however, I asked leave from the king, and came, I came to Jerusalem, and I learned about, notice this, every little section we're going to see today talks about evil. It talks about evil, and it talks about uh, his good that he does, that Nehemiah does, in light of that evil. 
Just remember that. I learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it was very displeasing to me. So I threw out all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room, out of the room. Then I gave an order that they gave an order and they cleansed the rooms and I returned there the utensils turned there the utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites that had not been given them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Then I gathered them together and restored them to their posts. All Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And in charge of the storehouses, I appointed uh, uh, Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and Pedadiah of the Levites. In addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zachor, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable. Remember that. And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. Now notice this, each section here, there's going to be three sections, ends with this type of a statement. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. Now that's what we're going to look at today, but I want to read through the next two sections so we gain context for this, okay? I'm going to read through it and we'll look at those uh, next uh, week, Lord willing. In those days, notice this, same days of what he's talking about before, right? In those days, I saw, it's a break. It starts a new section, but it's very similar, but there's something else going on. In those days, I saw in Judah some who were treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sacks of grain and loading them on donkeys as well as wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And they brought them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So I admonished them on the day they sold food. Also, the men of Tyre who were, were living there who imported fish and all kinds of merchandise and sold them to the sons of Judah on the Sabbath, even in Jerusalem. Then I reprimanded the nobles. Now, we're going to see the officials first were reprimanded, then the nobles, and it was the priests, and we'll see, and, and Levites later on, reprimanded the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this, notice this again, evil, what is this evil you are doing by profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do the same so that our God brought on us and on the city all this trouble? Uh, you are adding to the wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came about that just as it grew dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and that they should not open them until after the Sabbath. Then I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load should enter on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the traders and the merchants of every kind of merchandise spent the night outside Jerusalem. Then I warned them and said to them, Why do you spend the night in front of the wall? If you do so again, I will use force against you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath. For this also, notice this again, Remember me, O oh my God. And have compassion on me according to the greatness of thy loving kindness. That's the second one, okay? Now the third one. In those days I also saw, again, this is the three things I was telling you about. And there's, there's things within those things, but three main, main areas. I saw the Jews had married women from Ashdod, that's uh, Philistine area, right? Ammon and Moab. Not good. 
As for their children, half spoke the language of Ashtab, and none of them were able to speak the language of Judah. That's not good. He's gone for maybe a couple years. Could be up to 12 years. He's gone, but a couple years. And they've had kids. They've intermarried. Now they've got these kids who don't even speak uh, Hebrew, right? And so he says here, people. So I contended with them, and I cursed them, and I struck some of them, pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God. He's quite a leader, isn't he, right? <laughs> okay. And he says here, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, the king of Israel, sin regarding these things? And yet among many nations there was no king like him, and he was loved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. The wisest guy on earth, right? Even him, the foreign woman. You disobey God, doesn't matter how wise you are, you're in trouble. Caused him to sin. Do we then hear about that? You've committed all this great, here you go again, evil. Evil by acting unfaithfully or being treacherous. Treacherous against our God by marrying foreign women. Every one of the sons of Jehoiada and of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of San, even one, not everyone, even one. There's an example. Uh, Sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was a son-in-law of Sanballat. Oh, man, if you've been with us in in this book, Sanballat, Tobiah, those are the bad guys. Um, The Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Uh, Praise the Lord. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from every foreign and a, and a foreign everything foreign, and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each in his own task. And I arranged for the supply of wood and appointed times for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. And that ends Nehemiah. Kind of an interesting end, isn't it? Kind of an interesting end. So we we come to this last portion of the book, and as I mentioned, as I read, I pointed out a couple things, and I want to just review those. That will help us interpret what we're going to see uh, individually in these portions here. Uh, Now remember, we just saw that uh, there were three basic areas, that he saw three basic areas of evil. And he addresses those areas of evil, and then he says something to the effect of, remember me, O God, for good. Remember me for what I've done. And see, that's really the, the structure of this. Uh, and those three basic areas corresponded directly, by the way, to the three areas back in chapter 10 that the people said, we're no longer going to do this. And so time goes by, and there's a lesson for us. We are weak, and we need to be careful, and we need to be guarded. Now, Nehemiah didn't fall. Yeah, but the, the people, they fell. We see here mostly the leadership, and it's really bad leadership. But time goes by and they slipped back into sinful ways in disobedience of the word of God. And for us, we need to be very careful we don't compromise. We stand firm. We trust the Lord. God brings discipline on us and we're like, yes, I'm going to follow you. And then things get easy and we start to go that way again. Not good. Don't do it. Learn from this. We're going to see in a moment these things have been written for our instruction. Written for our instruction. So there were the three areas back in chapter 10 in verses 28 to 39. That's when the people and the leaders committed. And the first area was they would no longer take wives for, for their sons and daughters from the peoples of the land. That's chapter 10, 28. We're not going to do that anymore. Well, here we see they're doing it. Right? Okay. 
The second one, they are no longer to buy wares and grain for the Sabbath, but keep it holy. Well, guess what? They're doing it again. They got the traders coming, hanging out and coming through on, uh, on the Sabbath. They're buying and selling on the Sabbath. And the third thing, they had committed that they would no longer forsake the house of the Lord. They'd forsaken the tithes. They'd forsaken serving. And guess what? You got this Tobiah in there taking up all the room where all the storing should be for the pay, in a sense, for the people, Levites and singers. And so they leave. So they have forsaken the house of the Lord. So these very three things are what happens after Nehemiah leaves and comes back comes back and so then with that in mind we come again to our passage to our passage and uh and within this uh we recognize we recognize that this passage is about nehemiah doing good addressing the evil of the leadership and thus the people that they had slipped back into those things so quickly and we can learn from that first of all what godly leaders should look like Secondly, we should learn what we should be aware of and cautious of not slipping back into ourselves. Not slipping back into ourselves. Now, we know uh, from this uh, that um, uh, these things are written for our instruction. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Yes, we are not Israel, but uh, we're the church, right? But God brought the Savior through Israel. Jesus, he, he, he came through Israel, right? And he is going to save all Israel. He declares he's going to do so, right? Uh, all Israel will be saved. But so as we look back at the Israelites here, they had made a covenant with the Lord. And so there's some specific differences that us, but there are things that we can learn from. First Corinthians chapter 10. Now, after talking about um, Moses and all the disobedience when they came out uh, of, the, of, of, of uh, Egypt, he says here at First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6, now these things happened as examples for for who? For us. That was the Corinthians. Those are Gentiles, right? New Testament believers, right? Here, that we should not crave evil things as they also craved. Uh, and do not be idolaters as some of them were, as is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immor- immorally as some did them did, and 23,000 fell in a day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did who were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all, now these things happened to them as an example and they were written for our instruction. We can be and should be instructed from the Old Testament. We should hear the word of God, see it and be instructed from it. And we're going to see they were written for our instruction he says here, uh, whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We see, first of all, they're written so that we wouldn't sin like them, right? But they're also written that we would have hope. Uh, for, for Romans 15, turn to Romans 15, then we'll go back to Nehemiah. Romans 15, verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4. Oh, how gracious God is and how patient he is. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. God, and it's God, we see the next verse, that brings perseverance and encouragement. And it brings hope. 
You see, it also teaches us not to sin, but it brings us hope. And so as we look at this passage, we should, one, be convicted about sin, as we'll look at that. And secondly, we should be hopeful, as we'll see, as God instructs us. So back to Nehemiah, back to Nehemiah. And I believe the first thing we're going to see about uh, leadership, and a lot of people teach this passage, make it all about compromise, and that's all it's about. And certainly there is that. But I see the element of, of the leaders, the, the, the officials, the nobles, uh, the priests. You know, you see that element here. That's where it's coming from. And that's what's affecting everyone else. And so we need to understand what godly leaders should look like and make sure we place ourselves under such so that we don't put ourselves in temptation to sin like they are sinning, right? We don't want to be in the context of those who are doing evil, right? We don't want to. And it happens so quick, so quick. So I believe, first of all, we're going to see today that godly leaders address defilement and neglect in the house of God when they see it. Now, it's an Old Testament sense in the temple, but they address defilement and neglect in the body of Christ. New Testament leaders, right? When you see it, that'll be a principle, as we'll see. They don't just let it go and let it happen. Let evil just flow within the the, the church. Well, here we're going to see in the temple what happens. Notice this here, that Nehemiah cleanses the house of God, defiled by the high priest, and he restores its services that were forsaken. Uh, Verse 4, now prior to this, we'll talk about that in a minute, Eliashib, the priest, now he's called the priest here, and he's actually uh, the high priest, but I think he's called the priest here, the Lord is making it clear, hey, he's not acting like a high priest right now, Um, he's actually acting very badly, okay? The priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him where formerly, and this is is Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 4, now five, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put grain offerings, the frankincense, the utensils, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil prescribed for the Levites and singers and the gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. Now, if you haven't studied Nehemiah, you'd be going, okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, but if you say Nehemiah, you're going, to, what? What in the world is happening here? What in the world is happening here? How could this be? Now, addressing this term in verse 4, the term now prior to this, this caused me quite a quandary because everything after that is 12 years later. But he says now prior to this, and what happened in verses 1 through 3, that was the dedication of the law. How could that be? That didn't make sense. It wasn't making sense to me. Okay? Uh, How could that be? Well, uh, the reality is, first of all, you have verses 1 through 3 talking about the dedication, okay? That's, he says, because verse 1, on that day, that's the day of dedication, still back in that time. Later on, we'll see Nehemiah has been gone for 11 years or 12 years, or he's, 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 if 12 years have passed. We don't know how long he's been gone. And so we have here uh, this situation. Now, what's happening here, which is helpful, is understanding this, this term here, but what the quandary I had was, it says now prior to this, but then look at verse 6. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes. That's 12 years later than the dedication. Wait a second. How is he talking about all this happening 12 years later, but the first statement says now prior to this? Uh, how could this be? Uh, certainly if Nehemiah was around, he would have booted Tobiah out earlier, right? So it had to be during the time he was gone. Nehemiah would have booted him right out if he knew that was happening, right? We see that. So here, it's quite clear that the event where Eliashib makes room for Tobiah happened after Nehemiah left. But how do we reconcile this? 
Well, as I was looking at the original language, this term translated prior to this, or some places translated before this, that speaks from our perspective of time, prior or before. But the word literally means, you could translate, the phrase means, in the face of this. In the face of this. So if I was in the face of my dad, I would be before him, positionally. Now you could take that term before and translate it time-wise, before in time. So you can see where there's a little mix-up here. So this speaks of being in front of someone in position. So I think Nehemiah is saying, in the face of what we just saw, look what happens. I think that's what he's saying. I don't think it speaks of time, which they've mistranslated. I think it speaks of position, of position, because it literally means in the face of this, in front of this. Right in front of this happens this. Not before it, but you can see how it can be mistranslated, right? Very easily, okay? So here, even look back at uh, chapter uh, 13, uh, verse 1. On that day they read aloud from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. That's the day of the dedication. That was the uh, 20th year of Artaxerxes, okay? And they found written in it that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God because they did not meet the sons of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, God, however, our God turned a curse into a blessing. So it came about that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. So they're hearing the word of God and they're responding. And they're, they're reading, as we saw, and you can look at the message from last time. In Deuteronomy 23, it said that no foreigner should be in the assembly. That's in the temple. It shouldn't be in there. shouldn't be in there because they treated the Israelites badly when they came out. And when they came through, we went through all of that, right? Went through all that. And so they make the, 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 the commitment, hey, we're kicking them out. And now Nehemiah says, in light of that, in the face of that, look what happened 12 years later. You've got an Ammonite in the temple living there. I think that's what's going on. I think he's making a point of how stark the contrast is between that time of dedication and commitment and obedience to now 12 years later. 12 years later. So, wow. Okay, they heard the word of God. They responded, they responded booted out foreigners. Then all of a sudden, in the face of this... Uh, so I'm going to read it through. I'm going to look again. Verse 3 of chapter 13. Uh, so it came about that when they heard the law, now I may have been saying chapter 14, there is no chapter 14, chapter 13, right? Okay, if I said 14, you know what I mean, right? Um, so it came about that when they heard the law, they excluded all foreigners from Israel. Now part of this, or literally now in the face of this, in the face of this, literally, Eliashib, the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, being related to Tobiah, had prepared a large room for him. Oh boy, oh boy. Now, in the temple, there were chambers, and in these chambers, there were differing rooms. We're going to see there was a room prepared for him, but later on, it says that they took stuff out of multiple rooms. The guy had a lot of places. The guy was taking up a lot of space. We're going to see even the space he was taking up was where they were to store the tithes and offerings for the Levites and the singers. And so he's now in that spot. Okay? This is bad. This is bad stuff. This is bad stuff. Oh, how quickly they have fallen how quickly they have fallen and so here we see here eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chair he was in charge of the head of the house by god being related to tobiah uh-oh being related to tobiah remember tobiah he's a bad guy 
Tobiah is a bad guy. He's an Ammonite, we'll see. He is an enemy of God. He's a faker. He's a false brother. He's a bad guy. And so the high priest prepares a large room for him, and he's living there in the temple, an Ammonite. How about that? Well, who is this Tobiah guy? Do you remember what we saw? Uh, and if you've been like with us in Nehemiah, you'd be shocked. If you, you know, as you read this, it's shocking. It's shocking to see how far they've fallen in 12 years, right? It's shocking. Well, Tobiah, we know that he is the Ammonite, chapter 2, Ammonite official. He's an Ammonite. He's an Ammonite. Uh, and we know from Psalm 83, the, the, the mindset of those who didn't unite with the Lord. We know uh, there were those like Ruth and, you know, and, and, and uh, Rahab who trusted the Lord. They, they united with the Lord. But the, the, the other people, they hated God's people. They hated God's people. Turn to Psalm 83. Psalm 83. Now, Tobiah, he's a sneaky hater. He's going to pretend he's one of them. You know, but he's not, as we saw, and we've seen that. You got Sanballat, the absolute enemy, outright enemy. You got Tobiah, who's the faker inside the system, right? Bad guy. Psalm 83, a song, a psalm of Asap. Oh God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. Oh God, do not be still. For behold, thine enemies make an uproar, and those who hate thee. Notice that. Those who hate thee, they hate the Lord. Hate thee, have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against thy people. We saw that throughout, right? The book, right? Shrewd plans. And they conspire together against thy treasured ones. And they have said, come, let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they have conspired together with one mind against thee, do they make a covenant. The tents of Eden and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, uh, Gabal and Ammon, there you go, and Amalek, Philistia, and the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria, have joined with them. They have all become a help to the children of Lot. The, the children of Lot's uh, incestuous uh, situation after uh, Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. We have Moab and Ammon, right? We have that. Okay, so we have God's word pointing out, at least those nations are our enemies, but Tobiah was too. And so what else did we see in Nehemiah about Tobiah? He was an enemy of Nehemiah and thus an enemy of God. Uh, You might remember back in chapter 2, verse 10, um, when he heard the news that Nehemiah was coming, it was displeasing that he was helping him out. Wait a second, someone helping out God's people? That should be joyful if you're God's people, right? No, it was very displeasing to them, and he was part of them, Sanballat and Tobiah, that someone would come to seek the welfare of the sons of Israel. Chapter 2, verse 19, we see Sanballat, him, him along with Sanballat and Gershon, they mocked and despised Nehemiah, saying, what is this you're doing, rebelling against the king? We see him mocking, okay? Chapter 4, verse 3, we see uh, Tobiah mocking directly, directly, um, and uh, concerning their, their work on the wall, basically saying, hey, if a fox jumped on it, it'd fall over. It's nothing. A squirrel jumps on that wall, it's going to fall. It's, it's you know, trying to discourage the workers, right? In chapter 6, Nehemiah calls him clearly an enemy. An enemy. Tobiah is an enemy. Uh, enemy. And uh, Sanballat uh, and him, they've hired false prophets later on, verse 12 in chapter 6. Bad guys. So Tobiah was an enemy of Nehemiah and the Lord and his people, but yet he infiltrated the Jews as a false brother. Indeed, his name means Yahweh is my God. 
Ah, he's infiltrated them. He's a false brother. That's not true. Yahweh is not Tobias God. That's not true. His name does not represent him. And you might remember in the end of chapter 6, after a great victory, we see for the Jews, uh, Satan used Tobiah right away to attack. He was writing letters back and forth, and he was, he was uh, speaking of, uh, the people were speaking of Tobiah's good deeds to discourage uh, Nehemiah. Let me read that, chapter 6, verse 17. And in those days, many letters were sent from the nobles to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came from them. And many in Judah were bound by oath to him. There we go. That's all right. And many were bound by oath to him because he was, listen to this, the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Arah, and his son Jehanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. Ah, they were bound by oaths because they had intermarried. There was a family relationship which was higher than their family in the Lord, okay? Bad news, bad news. Moreover, they were speaking of his good deeds in my presence and reported them my words to him. Then Tobias sent letters to frighten me. This is a bad guy. He is an enemy. He is a bad guy. He had married a Jewish girl, his son-in-law. We see that. And he was actually related to Eliashib, the high priest, was related to him through this intermarriage, which was sinful and wrong. Sinful and wrong. This wretched evil man, an enemy of God, had infiltrated the people through mixed and sinful marriages And many of these Jews, as we saw back in chapter 6, had been sucked into the false spirituality of Tobiah through family ties. The false spirituality. Well, we've seen it even in our church, haven't we? We saw that happen. Satan doesn't change. His his methods are the same, right? We're not ignorant of his schemes. And so then, we see there is evil in God's house. There is evil in God's house. Back to our passage. Now, in the face of this, we see here, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God, being related to Tobiah, we know about that, right? Um, had prepared a large room for him where formerly they put the grain offerings, the frankincense utensils, the tithes of grain, and the oil prescribed for the Levites, the singers, the gate and the gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. Eliashib is letting Tobiah, the Ammonite, God's enemy, uh, live in the temple because they're related through sinful mixed marriages. And he's uh, snookered them. And he takes up the rooms that uh, the offerings are all supposed to be stored in. So we'll see in a moment there were the consequences that the people went away because they weren't getting the offerings to survive. So we'll see. So 12 years have passed since the dedication of the wall. Nehemiah has come back. Uh, he, he had gone back. He was the cupbearer to the king. And the king had let him come, go back. Um, and here uh, we're going to see he finds out what happens. So look in the end of verse 6. After some time, or actually, let me go back to verse verse 6, actually. But during all this time, I was not in Jerusalem. All what time? The time in which, this is chapter 13, verse 6, the time in which Tobiah was led into the to the temple. The time which he was in there. He, he was not in Jerusalem. If he was, he would have dealt with it, I believe. Absolutely. It says, I was not in Jerusalem for in the 32nd year, that's 12 years after all the rest of the book, the timing of the rest of the book earlier, of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had gone to the king. Now you say, wait a second, I thought he's the king of Persia. Well, he is the king of Persia. But he's pointing out here, I believe, uh, reminding us, certainly, that he's the king over a smaller sphere, which was Babylon, which Persia took over, you see? And that's where they had been in exile, and that's where they had come out of, okay? 
And so Nehemiah had been the cupbearer to the king. And he had gone back there. And he says, at after, middle end of verse 6, After some time, however, I asked for leave, asked leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem. And notice verse 7. And I came to Jerusalem, and I learned about the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. I think there were some good spiritual tattletales there. That's a good thing. He learned about the evil. They're saying, uh, Nehemiah, Tobiah's got a room. He's got a, he's got a hotel in the, in the, in the, in the temple, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, and so he learned about it, right? He learned about it, uh, the evil. It's called evil. It's evil. It's evil to corrupt God's things. It's evil to do so. It's evil to, to, to bring in, as we'll see, non-believers into the church to serve and function. It's evil. It's wrong. It's wrong. And he wasn't even serving, but he was brought into the temple. And so he describes it as evil. And it was by preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. This is incredibly evil. Tobiah appeared to be a follower, but he was a bad guy, a faker, clearly known as an Ammonite, and he opposed the Lord and Nehemiah. We are not to have any religious association with anyone who doesn't believe in Christ. We are not to have any religious association. Now, those who believe in Catholic intercessory works, sacraments, and dogma are not brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not. They need Jesus. They need the real Jesus. They, they see a different Jesus. They need to believe in the true Jesus. They need to, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. Uh, Christ is the intercessor, not Mary. Okay? Uh, the, 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 the work, the grace they receive in their sacraments is not grace at all. We receive grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Right? It's by his grace we're saved. The Church of Christ, by and large, those who believe they're to be baptized to be saved, they're not brothers and sisters. They are not saved. We are saved by faith in Jesus Christ, not by works, lest any man should boast. The dead mainline denominations that proclaim you can live any way you want and go to heaven, that sin's not an issue just because blanket God loves you. Well, that's true, but is sin an issue? Yes, it is. That's why Jesus died, by the way. They deceive people into believing that you can live in your sins and be right with God. They are not brothers and sisters. On the side note, turn to Ephesians chapter 5, because there's multiple passages where Paul makes this clear that we should not be deceived. We not be deceived. We are all sinners, but we come to Jesus for forgiveness of sins. We don't stay in our sins and not uh, trust in Christ, right? We come to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. For this you know with certainty that no immoral, impure person or covetous man who's an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Anybody that lives and are identified by their sin, you know, you have these donations that bring in, you know, whatever it might be, and they don't, they say, I can be this way because Jesus loves me. I'm this way and I'm fine, you know, and they're talking about their sin, by the way. Uh, don't let anyone deceive you, by the way. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Because of this, God's wrath comes. But if they believe in Jesus, they'll be delivered from his wrath. So these are evil places, doing evil things. And we cannot associate with them religiously. We cannot do so. There's a passage that I always point to when I think about this. It is in Second John. Turn to Second John. 
We're not to associate with those who are not saved, no matter if they say they are not. Tobias said he was saved. He said, God, the Lord, you know, his name was a, was a biblical name, right? He would say, hey, I follow Yahweh, right? Well, he didn't, right? He was a bad guy. He's a bad guy. Turn to Second John. Second John. Find that here. Uh, verse 8. Watch yourselves, it says, that you might not lose what we've accomplished. What did they accomplish? They brought the word of God and they were being built up in Christ, right? Uh, what they accomplished. He says here, um, here we are. Accomplish, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, that is the truth, the doctrine, the truth concerning Jesus Christ. God took on human flesh. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. It's the truth concerning Jesus Christ. Does not have God. If they don't abide or remain that, they don't have God. They don't have a relationship. The one who abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching... Do not receive him into your house. Now, they had house churches in those days. Do not receive him in your house. And notice this. Do not give him a greeting. And this time, a greeting was a sign that you're a brother or sister. Hey, brothers, a greeting. That was an affirmation. You are a brother. I see you as a brother in Christ or sister in Christ. Do not give him a greeting. Don't, don't acknowledge that person as a brother when they're not, right? Because they don't hold to the teaching of Christ, right? And he says here, it says here, uh, do not give me a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. When we say, hey, they're okay, they're brothers, when they don't have the truth of Christ, that's very evil. When we yoke ourselves with those who have rejected Christ, it is very evil. And we have here, back in our passage, we have Eliashib, who has brought Tobiah in there, and Nehemiah hears about it. And notice his reaction, back to chapter 13, verse 8. And it was very displeasing to me. Now, that's an understatement. This, is, this translation may not be the best translation. The term displeasing is the same word translated evil, the verse before. And the term very here in Hebrew means exceedingly or much. It was an incredibly large evil to me. It was really, really, really evil. Certainly that would be displeasing. Exceedingly evil to Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a man of God, and if it was exceedingly evil to him, it was evil to God. You see, godly men are not hypocrites. Godly men do not uh, play around with evil and say it's okay. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 9, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Now this is what Nehemiah does. He doesn't only cling to it, he does the right thing. So what do godly leaders do in response when they see evil? Does he call a bunch of people to meet and have a meeting? Does he call a council meeting? Does he call everybody around to say, let's do something here? No. It says here, middle of eight, so I threw an owl of Tobias' household goods out of the room. Now, I like that. I like that because he goes right to the issue. He throws his stuff out. Now, evidently from that statement, Tobiah wasn't there, evidently. So he'd have a little rude awakening coming back to the temple and seeing all his stuff strewn out in the street, right? Threw it out of the room. So Tobiah gets immediately evicted from God's house. And that's what needs to happen in churches. 
where there are non-believers who are fakers, who are functioning and whatever it might be, they need to be immediately evicted. They're not seekers or whatever. No one seeks God, by the way, unless God is drawing them. They, they are infiltrating the church. They're doing evil and they need to be thrown out, thrown out. So I threw out all Tobias houses good from the room. Now we're going to see this godly characteristic. He is doing good. And this reminds me of the cleansing of the temple. We looked at that last week. That's why we looked at it. It reminds me of that, that there was a righteous indignation. Now, remember, the Lord had a perfectly righteous indignation, and uh, he's God. We need to be careful. Uh, the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, but yet godly leaders will do what is right, and Nehemiah did the right thing here. And so we need to never yoke ourselves with those who pretend to know Christ. Never yoke yourself with leaders who pretend to know Christ. Don't do so. Don't yoke yourself over the radio. Don't yoke yourself in books. Don't yoke yourself in the church. Uh, don't do it. We never should yoke ourselves with non-believing fakers. It's, just, it's, it's bad. Isn't that what uh, Paul talked about and had to deal with with the Corinthians? I mentioned this earlier. We see in the second book of Second Corinthians, which we're studying on Wednesday nights, that the Corinthians had affections for false apostles. And those false apostles were slandering Paul and corrupting the Corinthians' attitudes towards him and thus the Lord and his word. And Paul clearly had to unveil, he called it boasting, in a sense he was just using, uh, using a, 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 his words to, to confront that issue. He had to clearly expose that. And that's what we saw in Second Corinthians chapter 6. And turn there, we read this earlier in our service, but let's read it again. Second Corinthians chapter 6. This is what we are to do. We are not to be bound together with unbelievers. And then we need to be cleansed from that, as we'll see, through actually confessing in the blood of Christ. Second Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Our mouth is spoken freely, verse, verse 11, to you, O Corinthians, our heart is open wide. You are not restrained by us, but you're restrained by your own affections. Hey, it's your affections for these bad guys, these, these non-believers. That's what's restraining you, not us. He says here, now in like exchange, I speak as to children, open wide to us also. Hey, you're opening wide to the bad guys, open wide to us. He says here, do not be bound together with unbelievers. Now this is used almost, you know, un- almost, almost always for the speak of marriage, and it certainly applies. It applies in any situation about being bound with unbelievers, but it's primarily in context, speaking of these unbelieving false teachers. Not be bound by, together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and laws, fellowship have light with darkness, harmony have Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever, or agreement has a temple of God's idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Therefore, come out of their midst and be separate. We need to be separate. Now, when they're inside, they've got to be pushed. They've got to be put out, right? Right? We see here, and he says... And do not touch what is, Lord says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, I will welcome you. And I'll be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. When we have associations and yokings with non-believers, especially in church, our relationship with the Lord is completely strained. And we need to put it out. We need to separate, become clean. I'm not talking about being in the world. Paul said earlier, we're going to have to leave it if we're not in the world. We have associations with non-believers, but, but being yoked with them, we need to come out of their midst. And then in chapter 7, we see that there needs to be a cleansing. There needs to be a heart attitude change, too. Therefore, having these promises, the promise of God and our relationship restored, if we separate, right? He says here, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves. 
from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And how is it we cleanse ourselves? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. And so then, Nehemiah is a godly leader. He addresses the defilement in the temple by letting the, the Tobiah live there, and he throws him out. And notice he also cleansed the rooms. Verse 9, Then I gave the order that they cleanse all the rooms, and I returned their utensils of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. This is verse 9 of chapter 13. We've seen in Nehemiah, this was a ceremonial cleansing, and all along those ceremonial cleansings, those purifications we see in the law would point to the ultimate cleansing that comes in Jesus Christ. And so we need to, if we have yoked ourselves, confess and be cleansed through forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. So Nehemiah is godly. But then notice it doesn't stop here, and we'll finish up with this. Notice he sees neglect concerning the house, and he addresses it. Verse 10, chapter 13. I also discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given them so that the Levites and the singers who performed the service had gone away each to his own field. Wow. We had this great, wonderful worship and the dedication of all the singers and the, and the worship and the performance instruments, and it was glorious to God. And they were provided for in the context of temple worship. They were provided for. And Tobias taking up the rooms for all the gatherings for all their provision. And so they didn't get paid, and they left. They went, they went back each to their own field. You know, they couldn't make it, make, make, get by. Right to their own fields. And so here we see the uh, effects of what, other effects. You know, whenever there's sin and, and evil, it always reaches other places, right? It always affects other things around it. Uh, there's always uh, consequences. And notice what he says here. Um, he discovered that the portions of the Levites had not been given. They had not been given. So what does he do? Verse 11. So I reprimanded the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? Right down to the point, you're forsaking God's house. You're forsaking it. You're not obeying his word in relationship to how they are to be provided for, for the service and worship of the Lord. I reprimanded them. It's interesting. We have the high priest being exposed by Nehemiah's action. We have the reprimanding of the officials here. We have reprimanding of the nobles in verse 17. And then in verse 20, we have, re- we have uh, those who are corrupted through intermarriage, the priesthood, the covenant, and the Levites. We've got the leaders all messed up, and Nehemiah is cleaning house here. He's doing the right thing. Why is the house of God forsaken? Again, this is one of the areas that they had made a commitment in chapter 10. After being convicted of their sin, we're not going to forsake the house of the Lord, chapter, verse 39. We're not, they weren't giving the tithes, and they said, we're going to do it. We're going to commit to it. Oh, how fast uh, they fell, and oh, how fast we can fall. We get convicted of something and we are committed to doing what's right. We're trusting the Lord and all of a sudden time goes by and we start to step back into those same bad patterns or whatever it might be. Don't go there. Learn, be instructed from their evil. Don't do it. Don't do it. So he reprimanded them. He reprimanded them. And not only does he reprimand them, he makes it right. This is a good leader. He makes it right. Then, middle of verse 11, I gathered them together and restored them to their post. Now, there's differing possibilities here. Some might say he gathered the officials and restored them to their posts. But I would beg to differ because they were already gathered together being reprimanded. I think he's gathering together those who had left. 
and brought them back to their posts, brought them back to their duties in the temple. We're going to see that. The Levites and the singers who had left. And then notice the tithes start coming in. Verse 12, And all Judah then brought the tithe of the grain, the wine, and oil into the storehouses. That was uh, Tobiah's old place, right? The storehouses. So uh, brought it back into the temple. And notice something that's really important here, really important. And in charge of the storehouses, verse 13, I appointed Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, they're named here, and Pedadiah of the Levites. In addition to them was Hanan, the son of Zachor, the son of Mataniah. And this is really important. For they were considered reliable. Uh, Isn't that great? And it was their task to distribute to their kinsmen. They were to make sure the tithes got to those singers and the Levites uh, so that they didn't have to go out way and go back to their fields, right? According to the word of God, they were considered reliable. The term reliable here speaks of being faithful, speaks of being firm, solid, reliable. This is a great principle for leadership in the church. When people are appointed to task, they need to be those who are faithful, those who are considered reliable, who will do what they should be doing. Indeed, uh, the apostle uh, Paul talking to Timothy talks about the appointment of deacons. He says they must be faithful in all things. Chapter 3, verse 11. And the Lord considered that Paul was faithful, putting him into service. 1 Timothy 1.12. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, Paul says that he should entrust, Timothy should trust the truth of God, these things, to, to the faithful men who will teach others also. Faithful men. In, second, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, he says it's required of stewards that one be found trustworthy or faithful. Those are stewards in the word there we see, but also there's the issue of stewardship. And what about the parable of the talents? To the, what did the Lord say to the slaves who are faithful? Well done, thou good and faithful slave. You are faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew twenty-five twenty-one. So he puts reliable men to take care of what had been forsaken through the evil that uh, Eliashib did with Tobiah. He makes it right. He makes it right. He did good. He did good in response to evil. That's what leaders are to do. They are to do good in response to evil. Godly leaders address defilement and neglect in the house of God when they see it. When they see it. It's interesting. When I first pastored, I was asked to come to a church uh, and to help them leave their denomination because it was an ungodly denomination. The board had gotten saved. They even had women elders, and they, they, they stepped down because they saw in the word there shouldn't be elders. It was great. They got saved. And within that, uh, when I came to the church, I saw all these plaques, plaques like so-and-so's door, so-and-so's chair, so-and-so's this and that, and we just tore all that stuff out. It's not about people. It's not about that. It's about the Lord. It's about the Lord. And we need to, by God's strength and grace, do what is right and make sure that the church is not defiled by those who are in the flesh or don't know the Lord. Or don't know the Lord. So then, we finish up here in this first section, in this last portion of Nehemiah. Look at verse 14 in chapter 13. He says, Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out my loyal deeds for which I have performed for the house of my God and its services. He's talking about throwing out Tobiah. He's talking about reinstituting the ties for those, bringing back those who were serving so they function rightly. He's talking about that. He's saying it's good. Remember me for this, for this, O oh 
my God. Now, he's prayed like this before. He's prayed like this before. Uh, chapter 5, uh, verse 19. Remember me, O my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. Remember what I've done. Nehemiah helped the Jews, and uh, they had been a reproach to the nations. He helped them, led them to build the wall. He did good. He did good. Now, is Nehemiah maybe in this being prideful? Is he calling upon God's favor? Uh, uh, what is he doing? What is he doing? Well, I don't think Nehemiah believes that God's going to forget. I don't think that. Uh, this is not a works prayer. Uh, he is uh, in this requesting for God to pay attention in a sense. And we do that too. Lord, see, remember, think about what has happened here. Uh, there's, a, there's, an, there's an encouragement. He would even talk about the bad guys uh, Tobiah and Sanballat and say, remember, oh my God, those guys. Remember so that you deal with them. So that you deal with them. Not that you've forgotten it, but remember me so that you would do deal with this situation with me rightly. Indeed, I believe he prays this in light of the scriptures that we would see like in um, Hebrews chapter 6. For God is not so unjust to forget your work and the love that you've shown towards the saints in having ministered and still ministered to the saints. Remember, He's requesting that. He's requesting that he would be thinking about that. And notice he says, and do not blot out my loyal deeds. You know, you think, wait a second, blot out? What kind of language is this? Well, it's a Hebrewism. Um, Hebrewism. Basically, it's the same thing we see in the in Revelation, where he will not blot out your names for the book of life. It's not saying he's going to blot it out. It's saying, it's saying the exact opposite. It's really saying the opposite to make a point and emphasize it. Don't blot it out. It means think. It means make it grand in a sense, right? Be thinking about it. My loyal deeds, in which I performed for the house of my God and its services. My chesed deeds, according to your covenant, Lord God, your loyal love. These things I've done. Don't 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 let them become insignificant in a sense. You know, we pray for God to pay attention to our situations, right? You got a situation? It's prayer. You're one, you know, and you're saying, "Lord, please pay attention. Please uh, focus on. Please help me in this area. Please, uh, I ask for your help." Right? And so he is righteously praying, "Remember me for this, oh my God." What I want to ask you is, can you have anything you can say, "Remember me for this, Lord," that you have done the right thing, and you want God's uh, favor upon you in in the future, based on the situation? there are certainly going to be some consequences to this, what he's done. Certainly going to be some issues. Lord, please be aware. Be focused on this. Remember me, Lord God, right? So then, we've seen here that godly leaders address defilement and neglect of the house of God. It's a prayer for the Lord here at the end for him to respond in appropriate fashion. Respond, Lord, in the appropriate fashion. So then we see Nehemiah as a godly leader. And so what can we learn? Well, we need to place ourselves under godly leaders. We need to get away from uh, evil in the context of the church. We need to be pure in that sense. We need to be walking rightly. We need to have leaders that walk rightly. We need to not compromise with those who don't know the Lord. Uh, We need not compromise and yoke ourselves with unbelievers. Uh, We need to be those who are yoked to the Lord in obedience so that he's glorified. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the example of Nehemiah, and Lord, how he is remembered in this sense as we are looking at this. 
and you're using what he has done in trusting you to benefit us. Lord, thank you for his faithfulness and righteousness and goodness that comes from you in addressing this evil as an example for us, as instruction for us in whom the end of the ages have come. Lord, I pray that we would be those who don't slip back into sin, areas where you've disciplined us, slip back into it, Lord, that we would be reminded how easily and how quickly things go when we are not focused on you. So, Lord, I thank you for your kindness, your mercy. I thank you for the example of Nehemiah, and it's in his name we pray. Amen.